from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Is the U.S. corn and soybean crop growing thanks to recent rains? An in-depth look at USDA's WASDE report just released Friday. Coping with consolidation. This is the worst annual year pork producers will ever have. The livestock industry facing a couple major blows. We'll tell you why. Beefing up demand by serving up something new. I learned the fact that so many people working in this uh, industry are working so hard and taking care of the land and, and the cattle, not only for today, but for the next year, for the future. A twist on traditional trade missions. And in John's world. Remember the great trucker shortage? U.S. Farm Report, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when experience meets expertise. Pioneer, what's next happens here. Now for the news, USDA providing the latest look at supply and demand, revisions to yield, all of that happening in the WASDE report this month. Starting off with yield, which is based on the first farmer survey of the year, USDA trimming its national corn yield estimate from July. Now at 175.1 bushels per acre, production is also slightly lower at 15.1 billion bushels. That's down from July, but still up 10% compared to last year's final production estimate. And despite recent rains across the Midwest, USDA also reducing its national soybean yield estimate by more than a bushel. It's now pegged at just under 51 bushels per acre. Soybean production now sets at 4.20 billion bushels, 2% lower than last year's final. And the wheat yield now sets at 45.8 bushels per acre, down from the 46.1 pinned in the July report. The surprise in wheat came from harvested acres, though. Even with harvest issues in Kansas, USDA raising its harvested acreage estimate by 200,000 acres. Now, USDA also making some demand revisions. The agency cutting old crop corn exports by 25 million and slashing the estimate for new crop exports by 50 million bushels for corn. USDA also cutting feed usage by 25 million bushels. USDA trimming the wheat export and new crop corn export estimate by 25 million bushels. And as you can see, those adjustments impacted old and new crop balance sheets in the U.S. Corn and soybean old crop ending stocks were increased. For new crop, even with the expectation for lower corn exports, USDA still cut its new crop corn ending stocks estimate by 6 million bushels. Soybeans were also trimmed by nearly 6 million. For wheat, though, USDA increasing new crop ending stocks slightly there. And with the situation in Ukraine, what about global stocks? We'll talk about that coming up in our marketing roundtables. More rain in key growing areas proved beneficial for crops in need of moisture this week. Take a look at this map of rainfall over the past week. You can see how widespread those showers have been, including heavy rains in parts of Missouri, with some areas getting upwards of 10 inches of rain in the last week alone. Well, USDA releasing its latest crop condition rating numbers earlier this week. 57% of the corn crop is rated good to excellent. That's a two-point improvement over last week. 8% of the crop is now dented right on pace with the five-year average. Meanwhile, 54% of the soybean crop is rated good to excellent, also two points better than last week. And winter wheat harvest is chugging along, now 87% cut. That's a point behind the five-year average. Nebraska remains five points behind the average pace. And the cotton crop conditions, well, those are struggling. Just 41% of the crop is rated good to excellent this year. 
Meanwhile, a lack of rain through the Midwest in July has the Mississippi River 10 to 20 feet below 2020 and 2019 at the end of last week. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers says dry conditions are soaking up recent rains rather than it running into the river, although some moisture this weekend may change that. This is the second consecutive year water levels have fallen, threatening to disrupt traffic on the inland waterway. Earlier this summer, the U.S. posted its most substantial monthly trade deficit on record, and ag exports were particularly hit hard. In June, ag exports dropped more than 8% to $12.8 billion. That's the lowest monthly shipment value since September of 2021. Imports, those fell almost 6% to just under $16 billion. The drop resulted in a monthly deficit of $3.16 billion. China's economy appears to be continuing to falter. New data shows that China experienced a significant decrease in trade last month with both imports and exports recording double-digit declines due to weakening demand both domestically and internationally. In fact, the country saw a 14.5% year-over-year drop in sales. That's the steepest decline since the start of the pandemic in February of 2020. Meanwhile, imports also dropped 12.4%, the sharpest decrease since January. At the same time, Beijing's soybean imports are up sharply from a year ago. Trade numbers show China imported 9.73 million metric tons of soybeans last month. Now that's down more than 5% from June, but up more than 23% from last year. Chinese crush margins also turned positive in mid-June. That's driven by stronger demand for soybean meal and soy oil. A renewed push for year-round E15. The attorneys generals on behalf of Iowa and Nebraska are now suing the EPA over it. They're demanding the temporary waiver allowing year-round sales of E15 fuel become permanent. Now, previously, E15 was not sold during summer months, and that's due to reported environmental concerns. The states had requested the agency last year allow year-round E15 sales. However, the attorneys general argue the EPA failed to address the request within the 90-day response deadline specified by law. In April, EPA issued an initial temporary E15 sales waiver valid for 20 days. Since then, they have granted five more waivers, the most recent of which ended this week. That's it for the news. Well, we're into August, a big time for soybean yields. So is El Nino going to continue to pump that moisture into the Midwest? We'll have a check of weather coming up next. Now for a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht. Matt, we're seeing more storms across the U.S., including the Midwest. So is this officially the El Nino effect? Yeah, time. great question uh, regarding uh, El Nino. Now, I really don't think we feel the effects of that observed El Nino uh, until the winter. It's kind of like if you uh, jump into a hot tub uh, that it, or even just really cold water. It takes your body some time. You always hear, well, you'll get used to it. Same situation with how the atmosphere reacts to the warmer or cooler ocean temperatures as it takes time uh, for those change in temperatures to be reflected in what you see here, uh, which is the jet stream. So the bigger player being a global circulation in the oceans translates uh, to the jet stream, but it, uh, there's a bit of a lag time. And it's not until about the winter season that we'll uh, be able to really pinpoint this as an El Nino type jet stream or pattern. Now, speaking of which, here's the jet stream coming up uh, towards the end of the weekend. A shallow pocket of some cool air. The pattern is trying to go more zonal or more west to east. With that, rain chances stay low. And uh, where temperatures are the hottest, they'll stick around in the same area for an extended period of time. Where they're the coolest, 
those temperatures stick around for an extended period of time. So basically seeing this in the jet stream says uh, the current conditions you're experiencing, you know, whether it's Sunday or Monday, it's going to persist for a couple of days. It's not until Monday and Tuesday start to see a shallow trough start to dig back into the Midwest and then flatten back out by Wednesday and Thursday. And we return to where we were this weekend, which is a more zonal pattern coming through the United States and you kind of get a sense of uh, how this is all going to work out. The jet streams, nothing fancy. It's just kind of separating the cold from the hot. Uh, what's in between is where we could get some of those rain chances, but the heat's going to build from a, for a good portion of the United States back down here to the south and the cooler air is going to be anchored back up into Canada, a little bit into the Dakotas as well as northern Minnesota and Wisconsin in between is kind of that battleground where not only do you get the chance of some showers and thunderstorms, uh, but your temperatures aren't going to be fluctuating all that much. They're not going to get the extreme highs or lows. They're going to be pretty average. As for Friday, another little shallow a trough tries to dive on through with this high pressure down to the south, so it may get some more scattered showers and thunderstorms coming up Friday and Saturday of next weekend. I just spent a good three minutes talking just about the jet stream. As for that latest drought monitor, again, uh, up near the extreme, if not exceptional, in a portion of the United States. Hopefully, uh, through this weekend, this past weekend, we are able to get some help with some scattered showers and storms. Should be some more on the way going into next week. Thanks, Matt. Well, USDA's latest WASDE report released on Friday, drawing more debate about the national yield. But with these rains, is the national corn and soybean yield actually growing? Matt Bennett and Joe Vaklovic join us next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. A big weekend to talk markets with WASDE crop production just coming out. We have Joe Vaklovic of Standard Grain and Matt Bennett of agmarket.net to talk about the reports Joe, to start us off, though, yield, we figured that we were going to see a yield adjustment there, but were there any surprises out of these USDA reports? You could call the yield numbers surprising to, to some degree. Uh, the numbers were slightly lower than what the trade had expected, but not super bullish versus expectations, I don't think. And USDA did what they typically do when they cut supply, they also cut demand. So we ended up with carryout numbers, especially in the case of corn. Uh, that were actually larger than expected. The soybean carryout number was lighter than expected, but USDA did, uh, again, what they normally do. They cut demand as they cut supply, which I think is warranted given the pace of uh, things like new crop export sales. It, it's very, very early, but I, I don't think that they were unjustified in making those demand cuts. Okay, we will get into how these yield estimates were gathered this month compared to July, but Matt, when you look at the report as a whole, what stands out to you? You know, coming into the report, uh, it's something that I've been talking about this week is that, you know, it, as of August 1, you've got to assume the USDA had uh, the room to go ahead and make an, a yield adjustment lower. But we just had a massive rain event this past weekend over a pretty good chunk of the Corn Belt, which would lead me to believe that if the bean yields especially are as, as of August 1st, they're probably going to be discounted somewhat, which, you know, you could say that it was a friendly report from a yield standpoint, both corn and beans. But at the same time, whenever you're looking at yield, whenever you're looking at carryout, it was all within the range of trade guesses. Now, if we would have had something that would have been outside of those ranges, maybe we could have seen more of a, a pronounced reaction, if you will. But I think it was pretty clear after the report was released, you know, you had a little bit of a bump in the market. And then all of a sudden, uh, we kind of traded back uh, uh, towards unchanged and is very blase trade after that. And I believe that that's a true indication that the trade's taking a look and saying, you know what? Yeah, maybe yields are down a little bit as far as the print for this report, uh, but it's as of August 1st. So I think people have discounted it. 
Yeah, this was the first farmer survey. So, Joe, how does USDA for this report for August gather their yield estimate and how is that different from July? Uh, the stuff prior to August is more of like a formula based uh, approach. They have formulas that are based on a number of different things. This is mostly operator survey. And to, to go back to the date thing, I mean, that rain event that Matt mentioned, that was probably the biggest rain event the whole summer that happened last weekend, and it happened after August 1st. So I don't know what degree of that, if any, is reflected in these numbers. If, if that rain event is totally excluded from the numbers, then you could argue that the yield numbers are old news, uh, even as, as we discussed a report that was just released an hour ago, you know? Yeah. And Matt, you said the same thing. You said that based on that rain event that happened after August 1st, we could see this soybean yield continue to climb. But when it comes to corn, do you think that USDA is in line with where our national yield is today? Yeah, I, I guess, Tyne, uh, some people are probably going to disagree with me here, but I, I feel like the timing of the rain events this year was actually pretty darn good for uh, enough folks that we're going to have uh, better corn maybe than what some are expecting. And so I know we had, uh, you know, drought monitor that showed us a lot of stress throughout the Corn Belt. Uh, you would uh, assume that the yield would really be challenged. But, you know, a lot of folks were able to get rain right before pollination in a pretty large scale rain that was very similar to what we had this past weekend. And so I do think that this corn yield has a chance to move higher. If I was going to be betting one way or the other for both corn and soybeans, I would assume that uh, future reports are going to see yields maybe climb a little bit. A lot of it has to do with a really good finish. I know that you're talking about a little bit warmer and drier in the 8 to 14 day forecast as we head into the weekend. But at this time of year, most people like to see a little warmer, drier forecast, especially after getting so much rain. Joe, a week from Monday, we're going to be heading out on the Pro Farmer Crop Tour, so we'll have boots in the field looking at that. But when it comes to corn, do you think USDA may be too low and this corn yield's actually growing? Um, I think it's a possibility. I think the crop tour will be interesting. Here's one thing I'll point out. I'm going to say, I'll say something that's actually not uh, super bearish in nature. If you look at the stocks to use ratios and what USDA is projecting, uh, stocks to use ratio for soybeans, given what was printed today, is south of 6%, which is uh, very similar to what we've seen the last two or three years. In the last two or three years, you very often saw soybeans at $15, $16. Now, the opposite is true of corn. We've got a stocks to use ratio projection in corn that's like um, 15%. And those th that's a level that was associated with like the dog days from 2014 through 2019. So I, I could say something friendly about the bean market, given the, the projections on paper, a lot harder to do it with the corn. Well, there were definitely some revisions made to demand. We'll take a look at exports coming up on U.S. Farm Report. According to the American Trucking Association, they're short nearly 80,000 drivers. But is there really a shortage of truck drivers today? That's John's World this week. Cast your mind back to early 2022 and the headline-grabbing trucker shortage. My conclusion then was that there wasn't much hard data to substantiate that alarm. There always has been a need for truckers, and perversely, there seems to have been ample qualified workers to fill it at the same time. It didn't take an economics degree to figure out the problem. Truckers simply weren't being compensated enough to entice and keep workers. Now, a year and a half later, the headline is the demise of one of America's largest trucking companies, Yellow Trucking, and the end of 30,000 jobs they represent. Freight companies as a whole are struggling now with reduced demand, 
which threatens even more trucking jobs. At some point, most of us begin to wonder about these alleged shortages. Adding to the muddled picture of jobs and pay is the historically low unemployment rates, which emphatically illustrates how small the pool of potential employees is. For trucking, which is often a career step up from entry wage employment, increases in the minimum wage by many states has helped low-wage employees keep up. Since the pandemic, the surprising strength of low-wage compensation compared to skilled or managerial wages removes a lot of the motivation for workers to consider a trucking job. Note the inversion after the pandemic of which income quintile is seeing the greater wage increases. Trucking companies have long dealt with the astonishing turnover rates since the prospective employee pool was large enough and, for the most part, already qualified. New CDL licenses are issued to about half the current trucker numbers each year. Short-lived shortages are not limited to employees either. I started looking back at the numerous shortages and dire predictions of the last few years. At least some semiconductor chips, for example, are now surplus or even in a glut. We've discovered more sources for lithium than anyone imagined. Ditto for copper, cobalt, and phosphates. It appears markets can remedy shortages faster than we ever imagined, and that the few stubborn scarcities are sidestepped with alternative solutions. Not always, but certainly more than hysterical headlines suggest. There will always be warnings about trucker shortages, I suspect, but they won't be coming from truckers. Thanks, John. Well, we don't have a shortage of antique tractors, that's for sure. A look at some classic iron and tractor tails next. Your next piece of equipment is on MachineryPete.com. Search equipment from dealerships across the country to find what you're looking for. Only on MachineryPete.com. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we're going to feature a John Deere 620 Industrial from the Shawnee Tractor and Engine Club down in Oklahoma. When I found the tractor, it was not yellow. I did not know it was an industrial. It had been repainted a poor job of green. So the old standards really, I like them, the old Ds, and then I'd never really been around a 620 standard, so I thought, I got to have this. So I talked him out of it, brought it home, and it set for a year. When I started, you know, the oil cap, I took it off and was going to clean it and put it in the vat, and when I did, all the this green paint flaked off and there's this weird yellow. And I go, well, that's, I know John Deere's primer because I've seen it and that's, that's not primer. I called the Green Magazine because they do serial number searches. I said, now will this tell me if it's an industrial? And he got kind of quiet and he goes, well, what makes you think it's an industrial? And I said, well, under the green, there's this weird yellow that I think it looks like an, like an industrial. He said, if this is truly an industrial, it'll be the only one that's known that's resurfaced. So I sent him a whole bunch of pictures. He called me back a couple of weeks later and says, I don't need to come look at it. He says, from the pictures, I can tell you it was a, an industrial. He verified and authenticated it. He said that he thought there was probably maybe three made, but it'd be the only one that's resurfaced. I spent about nine months completely tore down to a bare case and start back. So gaskets, seals, bearings, O-rings are all, all new. There were a few things that were a little challenging, but most everything is, is pretty much interchangeable. When I start working on one, I, it kind of consumes me. It's a, it's a sickness. I'll die with it, not from it. 
Well, big news from Tyson and Smithfield this week, sending shockwaves through the pork and poultry industries. So is more consolidation expected to take place? And is this a repeat of 1998? That's our Farm Journal report next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Welcome back. Well, some big news shaking up the livestock industry this week. That includes Tyson announcing that it's continuing to struggle with its poultry business and it will shutter four more facilities later this year. Tyson Foods is saying the locations are in Arkansas, Indiana and Missouri. The company plans to move the production to other locations as a way to boost capacity utilization and reduce costs. Production is slated in at three of those locations yet this year and then another location early 2024. The company has been working through a significant consolidation plan over the past year and a half. You may remember back in May, Tyson reporting a surprise loss in the second quarter earnings. Monday, well, it reported another $400 million loss in Q3. However, the company still expects revenues above $53 billion. Well, Tyson's announcement, along with a Smithfield announcement this week, really sending shockwaves to producers impacted, but also those rural communities where those individuals work and live. But the reality is this could be just the start of another major shakeup in agriculture as the livestock industry copes with consolidation. Tyson Foods announcing it's shuttering four poultry processing plants later this year and into 2024. And Smithfield Foods says it's closing more pig farms in northern Missouri. Both were big announcements this week, signaling a big shift for the entire livestock industry. It has been decades, frankly, time before uh, the last time we've seen the, these kinds of signs of consolidation and just tells you where the industry is today. Of the four Tyson poultry processing sites that will soon close, two are located in Missouri. And those two plants alone, resulting in the loss of nearly 2,200 jobs. It also means poultry producers are rushing now to find a new home for their birds. I think some growers, likely their contracts will be bought out. I think in other cases, it seems like some growers are going to have, have the opportunity to be growers for other plants that are nearby to their facilities. And whether it's poultry or pork, economists say the decisions are driven purely by economics. If you look at uh, recent USDA data, it would suggest margins to, to broiler production have fallen 60% from July of 22 to July of 23. Iowa State University's data shows crumbling margins are also happening on the pork side. My data uh, through June shows pork prices are down 5% compared to June of last year. But when we adjust for inflation, that shows it's even worse. So prices are down 8% compared to the same time uh, last year. And even on a national level, the Bureau of Labor Statistics shows retail pork and poultry prices are also lower than last year. We've had a, you know at least a 10% pullback in most of those categories, and the, uh, particularly the chicken and the pork complex. Why is that? Uh, it's certainly not because cost of production have changed a lot. They're still elevated, but consumer buying power has been squeezed. Kansas State University's Glenn Tonzer tracks meat demand in a monthly meat monitor, showing consumers still want to buy protein. The meat demand monitor project that's beef and pork checkoff funded here at K-State uh, continues to show strong interest in keeping 
meat protein in your diet. So that isn't the narrative here. Rather, I think it is purchasing power. Scholl says consumer demand is driven by four things, consumer incomes, prices of other protein substitutes, as well as taste and preference. And today, he says it's the consumer income piece that's faltering. We really inflated consumer incomes. We pumped a ton of money into the economy. Money supply increased roughly 40% in two years. Consumers had a lot of money to spend, and they spent it on protein, including pork, right? And they had a lot less things to spend it on during the pandemic and the tail that, that persisted. And now that incomes are tightening, inflation and higher interest rates are also impacting how much protein consumers can afford to buy. Uh, it's not just pork, but in particular, when we look at pork, this is the third consecutive quarter that we've seen pork demand below year-ago levels. Um, and so while 2022 will really stood out as a very strong pork demand year and really helped offset a lot of the higher costs we had, we're starting to see that, that pork demand decline. Tyson CEO also telling Yahoo Financial this week there's never been a more challenging macro environment in his 40 years of business, adding, quote, it'll be challenging for a bit, end quote. So what makes this more challenging than even during COVID? Scholz says it's actually tied back to the pandemic. And you can think about this as just a really long tail on that because you got to think about all the outside forces that are impacting pork producers, right? You have higher interest rates, still inflation well above you know, the 2% that the, that the Federal Reserve benchmarks. You have employment issues. Uh, consumer incomes are obviously being impacted. Health of the general economy, questions of if we will enter a recession. Uh, fiscal policy, monetary policy, they're all impacting producers' profits. Iowa State's model for profitability shows fairer to finish operators in Iowa are bleeding red. This is the worst annual year pork producers will ever have. Before this, we always talked about 1998 as the worst year ever, but 2023 collectively will be worse than in 1998. Iowa State's data shows in 1998, which is the last time the industry saw mass consolidation, Farrell to finish operators in Iowa were losing nearly $27 a head. This year, projections are those losses will hit nearly $30 a head. And we're going to piggyback that with the year next year, at least what we're forecasting, is well below break-even level. So two consecutive years of large negative profits in pork production. And that's why economists warn that consolidation could continue and only accelerate in the coming months. Packer-owned hogs has been up to 40% of the hogs. You know, that's the number that's continued to increase. Um, potentially there we could see increases in, in Packer-owned hogs if, if that continues in consolidation. Um, and, and really, it's just farms getting larger. Schultz says it started in 2021 when Smithfield announced the closure of a 10,000 head a day pork processing plant closing in Virginia. We're starting to see when you look at packing plant closures ongoing, both in the United States and Canada, is a signal that we continue to see some contraction in the industry, as well as now we're seeing some farm closures that, that are obviously impacting inventory levels. This is really potentially the start of it as you look out the next year to 18 months, as I mentioned, those rather negative returns in the industry. As structural changes continue to gain steam, economists say labor is another pain point today for both pork and poultry. Lack of a labor availability. I mean, this is not a new issue. 
Uh, but I think it continues to, to be a problem for the, for the poultry industry of, do I have enough labor to run those, run that plant as efficiently as possible? And I think in many cases, the answer is no. Now, as you just heard, there is a demand problem, but it's also consumer spending and inflation that's impacting that demand. So we'll take a broader look at demand across the board with Joe Vaklovic and Matt Bennett next. Joe Vaklovic and Matt Bennett rejoining us, talking about WASD crop production. Let's look at exports, Matt. When you see some of the revisions that were made to corn exports for soybean exports and, and the changes that it had to both old crop and new crop ending stocks, what is the biggest surprise there? Were there any? I don't know that there was a big surprise. In fact, you know, as, as we talked about the possibility that we would see maybe yield come down a little bit, again, as of August 1st, our thought process was especially uh, really in the case of corn or soybeans that you had room to take a little bit of demand out. And the first place that we would go to do that would be exports, mostly because of uh, the way that the new crop book looks. I mean, as of this point, we're certainly running pretty far behind. Uh, we're catching up, though. The last couple of weeks have been, uh, you know, welcome surprise kind of seeing uh, some of these new crop sales actually show up which has really been nice to see but i was not surprised whatsoever that exports would come down you know 50 million out of corn i think you could take a little bit more yet i mean it's awful early though it's pretty tough to tell but uh, certainly if you end up with a 2.05 billion bushels you know you're looking at 300 plus above uh, what we saw for this particular marketing year that'd be a pretty big jump i think we could see it but it'd be a pretty big jump Joe, we are seeing more export sales on the books, hearing that there may be some crop damage in, in, in China. Do you think that this export picture could change? It could absolutely change. It's super, super early. Um, I've got the statistics for you in terms of new crop uh, sales and what USDA is projecting. So your new crop book of corn sales is 26% below where it was a year ago. USDA in its report today says that new crop exports will be up 26%. Uh, versus the old crop marketing year. So you've still got, if you're going to argue anything, you've got to argue that they're still overstating exports. And the same can be said for soybeans. Um, sales are off 42% versus last year. USDA says we're going to be off 8%. All that being said, the, the, the fact that the, the cuts to exports are probably justified, it can change really quickly. I mean, the deficit in corn could be made up through like two or three flash sales to China of, of the right quantities. So it's it's very, very early. Yet remember, we're talking about a marketing year that hasn't even started yet. So while it looks bad now, it could absolutely improve. And that's that's part of the market's function with these lower prices is, is to stimulate some demand. Joe, as you said, a lot could change and a lot could change quickly. We've seen what has happened with the ex escalation in Ukraine, question marks on the grain deal. And, you know, will it be Russia that's actually hurt the most from this? And how does all of that shake out, including exports to China? So when you look at these wild cards, Right now, Matt, are there any caveats for you with these exports? Yeah, I mean, there's no question. I mean, uh, whenever you look at, for instance, uh, Brazil's got an awfully big crop, uh, available supply there. Uh, but yet, you know, you see U.S. exports starting to pick up just a little bit. My thought process is that, you know, we may have to go and hunt just a little bit lower than where we're currently at uh, to be able to get uh, maybe some of the export demand stimulated that we'd like to see. Uh, but, you know, I think you've got to keep an eye on that Black Sea region, whether you're talking corn or wheat. I mean, there's no question that uh, you've still 
got the supply there. Most of the time that we see a bomb uh, fly, you know, you see the markets take off on a little bit of a jump. It gets sold pretty quickly. And the reason is because people know that the supply is there. It's just that we're disrupting the world flow. So I think moving forward, it's going to be very interesting to, you know, kind of see are the bombs going to be flying Russia towards Ukraine or uh, Ukraine towards Russia? Because I've got a lot more concerns if it's uh, Ukraine towards Russia, because if we do disrupt that wheat flow, uh, it's certainly going to have an impact on the market. All right, Joe. So for farmers that are getting ready to harvest, I mean, our next report uh, in the beginning of September, we will have more farmers that are in the field harvesting by then. So as you look at the possibility of yield maybe growing, looking at possible changes in exports, what should farmers be thinking about right now when it comes to some of these sales? Um, I think it's safe to say at this point, barring some sort of late season weather anomaly, flooding or whatever, it's not going to be a disaster this year, right? So you're going to be on to, uh, in regard to the market and the supply side, what's the next big thing? It's the South American growing season. Uh, they're going to start planting soybeans in Brazil here in a couple months. And um, there's always the potential for crop scare events like we had, you know, this uh, June, we could have a a, um, a winter crop scare event as it relates to South America. And because they're such a big player now, um, if you get the wrong weather forecast for a week or two, you could see a sharp rally in, in grain prices. And then also as it relates to this marketing, you're, a lot of guys are going to harvest corn, harvest soybeans, put them in the bin. You've really got into the next U.S. growing season uh, where you could see weather issues, you know, during planting next year. So um, I think this year is not going to be a, a disaster. The yields could change up or down a little bit. I don't think by much, but but you've still got um, a lot of things on the supply side in regard to South America, 2024 uh, U.S. production that uh, could could drastically change the prices of the crops you're going to harvest uh, here in a couple months. All right, Matt, Joe, thank you so much for joining us. We need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Beef exports shattered records last year, and while those exports are softer in 2023, it appears demand is picking up pace in terms of exports. But that's not stopping the U.S. cattle industry from serving up new market potential in a very unique way. This weekend, Michelle Rook explores how they're beefing up demand. Cattle producers in the U.S. Meat Export Federation hosted a Japanese celebrity chef here in South Dakota to help expand U.S. beef exports in Japan. TV host and chef Rika Yukimasa toured South Dakota cattle operations, including the Kamak Ranch, to learn how U.S. beef is raised. I learned that it's a life learning process to take care of the cattle as well as the pasture and then the grass and everything. And it, I learned the fact that so many people working in this uh, industry are working so hard and taking care of the land and, and the cattle, not only for today, but for the next year, for the future. She wants to share that with her audience, plus the positive attributes of U.S. beef versus highly marbled Japanese beef. I want to tell the Japanese audience that how we can appreciate American beef in slightly different way from Japanese beef. For example, um, Japanese beef is uh, has a lot of marble, whereas American beef is a lean meat. And it's great when you eat with a chunk of beef or a, a grill or eat as a steak. Kamak says engaging with Japanese consumers is key in expanding exports to this top customer. You know, we've got 100 plus species of native range that is still intact because we are raising cattle on it. It has not been put to plow. Um, 
and it is, you know, it's, it's nature continuing its, its life cycle and its ecosystem in a healthy, sustainable way. And I think it's important to share that message. And he recognizes the importance of exports, especially of variety meats, to his bottom line. A high-value market for those cuts is so important because what are we going to do with all the tongue? What are we going to do with all the short ribs? And things like that, the stomach, the tripe, the kidneys, uh, stuff that maybe we don't have a market for domestically, but when we can export you know, to Egypt or we can export to Japan, you know, short ribs to Korea, things like that. I mean, it's just adding value to us. In fact, Japan bought a total of $2.3 billion of U.S. beef in 2022 alone. I'm Michelle Brook for U.S. Farm Report. Thanks, Michelle. Well, the gamble of when to market your crops. Customer support is next. Why can't market advisors get it right? Registration is open for the 2023 Pro Farmer Crop Tour, August 21st through the 24th. Attend one of our nightly meetings or join online as we gain insight on the 2023 growing season. Visit profarmercroptour.com forward slash register to select the stop nearest you. Well, John and I have both heard the comments over the years how meteorologists and our market analysts can still have a job when their forecasts or projections aren't always right. Well, it's a complaint that isn't going away in customer support this weekend. A question today, a common question, about the commodity market and advice. The question I have is how the experts miss the markets by so much. Sold my beans, got the most I ever had. The next week off to the races, the bean market shot up and kept on their way up. And that's from Aaron Charlson, I hope it's right, in Forest City, Iowa. Seems like I've heard this complaint a few times before. There are a couple of things to keep in mind. The first is our ability to fool ourselves into thinking what we would have done with better information. Suppose you hadn't sold at what seemed like a great price. How can you be sure you would have sold later at even higher prices? Our brains are wired and trained to assure us we would have sold at the top. But the reasons markets keep going up is there are more buyers than sellers. During my career, I have constantly calculated how much money I needed just to survive and make a profit. After a few times of, uh, of experiences like yours, I realized that was the important number, not an imaginary price in the future much higher. My father frequently reminded me the secret to a long career in farming was to show up every spring. So my victories were matching that number or beating it a little bit and doing better was worth celebrating. The second point is those darn market advisors. Personally, I'm reassured when market prices move in ways that surprise them. The old saying, if they can predict the prices, why don't they just make a fortune on their own instead of selling that priceless information, does have an element of truth in it. Truly free and open markets are, by definition, unpredictable, which means we can all reach conclusions about market factors for our own farms. The other prediction problem is if an advisor was even slightly more accurate than others, more people would follow her advice, which would make the market act exactly the opposite. Announcing the prices peaking, for example, would flood the market with sellers. Plus, years of experience have proven to me 
I will hear the advice, such as that, about 30 seconds late, which is like last week in market time. Selling a crop for the best price ever is a singular event. Not being able to enjoy that rare moment robs farm careers of joy and accomplishment. Thanks, John. Well, up next on a lighter and more upbeat note, chickens for a cause. We're off to a fair in Wisconsin for a touching story next. Well, we had some dreary news in the poultry industry that we covered at the top of the show and in our Farm Journal report. So we wanted to end on a happier note. Chickens for a cause. Just look at that smile. A Wisconsin kid named Callan has just turned a couple of chickens into some serious bucks and he did it all for a good cause. Callan's younger brother is battling stage four cancer and so he wanted to help. So a family friend helped him sell his chickens at the Rock County Fair with the cash earned going for his brother's treatment. All told his chickens earned $6,000 and community members matched it, bringing the total to $12,000. Listen, there are so many touching stories out there from county fairs. If you have one, we want to hear about it. You can email those to mailbag at usfarmreport.com. I know state fairs are going on, so even if there's a touching story there that you want us to know about, please send it our way. Well, that does it for US Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to tune in again next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.